Now on RTE Radio 1, Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. Hello and welcome to this special RTE Arts Tonight event being recorded here in the Project Arts Centre as part of the 2015 Dublin Theatre Festival. I'm joined by four artists engaged in the art of sound and composition. Together we'll consider some of the challenges and approaches to sound design in theatre and discuss their experiences in this area. Carl Kennedy, Tom Lane, Dennis Clausey and Alma Keller, you're all very welcome. And we'll begin with sound. There you heard Grounded Sting, a short transition made by Carl Kennedy for the play Grounded by George Brandt, directed by Selena Cartmel, and staged a while back here at the Project Arts Centre. An example of the kind of soundscape and richness that a sound designer brings to the theatre. Carl, before we get into the larger discussion around all of this, would you give us a context for what we've just heard? Sure, well, the, the play is about a female pilot who used to fly F-16 fighter planes. She gets pregnant and she becomes literally grounded. She can't fly anymore. So she gets posted as a drone pilot. The story is all told by, amazingly by the, the actor Claire Dunn. And the audience are on two sides watching this story unfold. And she has this almost a walkway or a runway from which she tells the story. A lot of the story changes from location to location quite quickly. And at the start, this happens slowly and it gets faster and faster as you go along. So there's a mixture of music and sound in this show. It's kind of why it chose the clip for people listening in that a lot of what we do kind of mixes in between realistic sounds at one end and then at the other end completely abstract or or music on that end. So in this play there's a lot of sound and some of them are, are quite literal and as the play goes on they become more abstracted. When you hear this in the play you've heard a lot of the, the realistic sounds and you've heard a lot of the music. So the idea is that you hear a sort of echo uh, or a, an affected version of the realistic sound, just a nod to the music, which is kind of based in Americana, root style. So later on, we use a really quick whoosh like that to go from one place to the other so that she can come out of one location and move into another. There was a great sense of speed in, in that whole production. Was it? it was terrific. But I, I wonder, how did you all come into this world of, of sound? Was it something that you were interested in from, from early on? We had drawn towards it, Alma. No, not, not <laughs> at all. I studied music and then did a master's in sound design in Edinburgh. Uh, I knew it was an element of the music degree that I liked in that it was music and sound for a purpose. But I had never heard of doing sound for theatre. It was like film or I'd written sound and things to accompany paintings and all kinds of stuff. But finished the Masters in Edinburgh, really enjoyed it. And then a friend, Sophie Motley, a director, was doing a show and she said, Alma, you've done sound for theatre, haven't you? Would you do a show for me? And I said... Yes, I have. <laughs> and um, I can learn. Oh, yeah, so I'm quick, it'll be fine. So I did learn quick and loved the collaborative nature of it and the live nature of it. 
was thrilled to be in a room with people who all cared as much as I did about their art and the reasoning and the rigour behind it. And I'd never been in a room like that before. So, so your way in was through music, really? Yeah. Dennis, what about you? Yeah, music as well. I uh, studied in Maynooth. I did composition under John Buckley and Martin O'Leary. And um, I was doing a postgrad in arts administration because I, was, I didn't expect to get any kind of work in music. Then I, <laughs> my, my, mother, my mother actually saw an ad for a course for uh, film, <coughs> film scoring with Screen Training Ireland. And she said, you know, why don't you give that a bash? And I said, you know best. <laughs> so... Uh, so I went off, did, did the course, and then a couple of friends of mine, Jim Roach and Shane Cross, and started a company. They, we were in college together, and they were in part of the, um, the drama sock there. So we did our first production of The Glass Menagerie in 1998 in Dublin Castle in the Crypt, which is now gone. And then I got in contact with Liam Halligan through Laura Forrest Hay, who's another composer who was on the, the screen training course with me. She couldn't do a particular show that he was going to do, so he got in touch with me, and we did a show called Cracked, and there was three musicians and three actors and uh, we kind of did this devised piece and it was really successful and I just thought this is brilliant I want to do this forever you know and and you have and I have so far so far, yeah. so far. Tom how did you come into the um, world of, of sound and theatre through music as well yeah I did music uh, at college at university and then at masters and stuff uh, but then I always kind of at the same time did a bit of acting in college and a bit of like singing like in musicals and operas that kind of thing so I'd always like done the kind of on stage part of theatre stuff but then always done uh, more kind of concert music. But then um, being in Dublin, actually, when I started working with um, contemporary dance companies, first of all, so the first thing I did was with a choreographer called Emma Martin. Through that, kind of do, started doing more kind of stage-based work, and it started off as live music, and then it went more into the kind of recorded things. And then through that, theatre, because Dublin is such a kind of small, tight-knit community of theatre and dance people, you can, you can jump between the, the things. And um, So yeah, I've been doing theatre for the last three years, but also dance. Alma mentioned being delighted to find people with the shared interest and, and the collaborative nature of it really yeah. appealing to her. Was it similar for you? I mean, especially I found to starting work in contemporary dance, uh, they need so much music. I mean, there's, there's also dance without music, but it's, you know, it's more generally common to have music for dance pieces. And you don't have to worry about like being too loud over the text <laughs> or, you know, or working with singers or anything. You just, um, you can kind of let rip, try lots of different things and it's a nice way of trying uh, music and sound with stuff on, with like visual things on stage. And you can, you can juxtapose it like a fast thing on stage with a slow thing in sound or the other way around or match it or correspond with it, you know, that kind of thing. Carl, what was your way into this world? I started playing traditional music and, and percussion when I was young. So I used to play in, you know, in pubs and things. I got interested in theatre and I was acting. After I left school, I trained to become an actor. And so I was acting for a couple of years in Dublin. During this, I was still playing music and I was recording a lot. I always played with synthesizers, even when I was playing traditional Irish music. But the recording setup was quite big. So that stayed at home in Tipperary in my parents' house. And I was living in Dublin and doing acting. On some of the shows I was acting in, uh, one of them with uh, storytellers directed by Liam Halligan, I, I met Dennis. And I would constantly plague Dennis about what he was doing <laughs> during the tech when I wasn't on. It's like, oh, so what's that, Dennis? What are you doing there uh, with the technology? And then I, I bought a computer and a friend of mine asked me to write the music for a play he was directing for a youth theatre. You might know it, uh, At the Black Pig's Dyke. Vaguely familiar. it. And I said, oh, great. And I had just got the computer and I, I was in a position where I could record the music at home. And I, I absolutely loved it. And slowly over a period of about two years, 
I started doing more and more sound design. Then I went and trained in music technology in the Academy of Sound in Dublin, which is also a kind of studio recording engineering course, which was would have been the part I was less familiar with. And then eventually I, I just ended up doing, doing this all the time. And I, I just enjoyed it more and more. Got a great, great kick out. It's very interesting that you all came into this area through music. And I wonder, is there a sense in which sound design for theatre is almost like scoring uh, a text and making something musical, even if it isn't necessarily heard as musical? I mean, some many plays have a musicality anyway, but are you looking for that? Are you seeking that and well, if seeking you, to... If you hear, if you, anything you hear, is it's sound. So even music is sound. It's not, I mean, some, it might be classed as music, but it's, it's an aural thing, you know? If you want to be really strict about it, it's about your palate of where you're getting your elements from. You might be making a piece of music, but it's made from samples of buses passing mm. at different speeds, and that makes different tones. I guess it'd be rhythm would, that would make something musical, or maybe uh, not. The, you could, or you notes, could spend I don't know. A, yeah. What's, where does the boundary? It's where you, it's where you put it. It's Everything has a pitch. I, it's I suspect that a lot of people who might go to the theatre and look at a programme will see yeah. sound designed by, and they'll think, what does that mean? Okay. I mean, how, how do you yourselves define sound design. If, if somebody said to you, what do you do? How do you describe it, Dennis? I mean, one of the kind of little jokey ways of describing it is saying anything that comes out of the speakers. <laughs> that is a rough... <laughs> Including the problematic buzzes yeah. and things that you're not controlling. Yeah, no, I didn't do that bit. <laughs> yeah. um, but obviously there's also the live element and the evolution of it has a lot to do with budgets and that certainly I was asked to do music for most of the early productions that I was involved with and then they'd say, we don't have money for a sound designer, so can you get us the sound of a dog barking off the disc or whatever's required, you know? Eventually you'd kind of figure out, okay, this is, this is how it's working and in fact, if you do approach it from a musical way, you know, and even in terms of the structure of the piece, I think it's, it's a lot to do with structure as well, then it can present itself as a more musical element. I think that's how I do it. Other people will do it differently. Mm. And I, certainly in the UK, there's a fairly strict difference between a sound designer and a composer, you know, and they will marry over sometimes, but it's, it's certainly not the way we have it here. I prefer to do it all myself, you know, because I feel I have more control over it as well. And they can inform, the other elements can inform each other. Yeah, mm. yeah. More closely. Tom, when you, mm. when you get a text for the first time, for instance, and somebody says, you know, I want you to be the sound designer for this show, how do you read the text? What are you looking for? What are you listening well, you for? Well, can, you can read on, like, a really basic level, like, do they ever mention sound or music? So, like, <laughs> for example... Well, I Why mean, not? Yeah, <laughs> which is... But, for example, um, I did Twelfth Night last year, which is by Shakespeare. The very first thing it says in the script is music plays... <laughs> And then the first line is, if music be the food of love, play on. So it's like the sound cue is in the script. And then there's also things where it says he sings and there's a song text. And so you can start from those basic things. I mean, a lot of Shakespeare plays have music in the script. If you're putting stuff in, in the play that isn't like in the script, I kind of have to wait until I see the thing in rehearsal to get a sense of when to do it. Because just from the text, I don't know, it's kind of hard. And you also have to work a lot with the other artists, like the director and the lights and everything. I think it's... It's hard to just approach it dry from the script unless there's like obvious things that are in the script. And how important for you is that collaborative element of theatre, uh, working with perhaps sometimes the writer, but a particularly director, maybe set designer, lighting designer, that whole team who make the production come alive? Crucial. My work wouldn't exist on its own, yeah. really, or if it does, it would have no context. With the best will in the world, if I go like that to a dry script, I'll still write down all my initial ideas. But if I go and meet the set designer and they've set it in space, 
<laughs> like, oh, I better rethink that, you know? Yeah. And that's okay. And you pull together your ideas and you come up with the best idea. But always the best design is one that's a composite design between all elements and that everyone is on the same page. Were there people who who really helped you along the way? Did, did you have mentors? Were there people <laughs> you learned from? Alma's pointing at Dennis. Third generation. Alma. Tom pointed out. It's, it's, so do you all work quite closely together at times and talk to each other and share, share information, share ideas? I'm forever plaguing Dennis with emails of how do you do this or who should I talk to about this? And he was officially my mentor on the Rough Magic Seeds programme about every two years. The theatre company Rough Magic take on four or five young theatre practitioners across varying disciplines. So they could have some directors, lighting designers, sound designers, production managers. And they mind you for about two years where they introduce you to the way that they make theatre and their approach to it. And they facilitate you making your own work and starting a career and it works. It really works. And in fact, while Alma was on the seeds, I was doing the advanced programme with Rough Magic, which was for more established artists, I guess. Uh, elderly. Elderly. We call, we call them the weeds. Thanks, Tom. The seeds call them the weeds. The weeds. The weeds, um, weeds programme. So I was on the advanced programme, and we got to, along with the seeds, actually, we got to go to other countries to see work that was being produced over there. So we were in Poland and Berlin, Avignon at the festival there, and... I even sat in on the uh, the Spider-Man musical over in oh, wow. New York, and cool. you know, oh, what, what, what was that? Tried to resist the temptation of unplugging the desk and causing, <laughs> causing another stir <laughs> yeah. in the papers. You know? What was the sound like in that? The sound was really well produced. He said <laughs> very carefully. Yeah. Is Bono in the audience? Yeah. <laughs> Not that day, but apparently The Edge had been over two days before me and the musical director was going, you, so, you sound so much like The Edge. <laughs> You're <laughs> Irish. You yeah. Uh, yeah, basically. The sound system was designed specifically for the show. So everything, the, the speakers, the radio mics, the compression units, the effects units, all that kind of stuff was, was hand-designed. The guy that was out doing the sound beside me the array of toys he had on his... Now, he, you know, he wasn't doing a lot at the time because it had been set, but he was ready to tweak anything at any time, and it was, it was a big production. And then, of course, the flying started. And that was wasn't, <laughs> wasn't the band in a different room? Like, not the band were underneath the stage, yeah. but they, you'd see them at the end on a monitor. They'd show them on a monitor. Yeah, but they, you know? they weren't actually like in the pit or anything? No, in fact, they were in two rooms. Electric instruments in one room, and then uh, acoustic instruments in another room. That is yeah. mad! Well, yeah. In one room, life? they were looking at the conductor yeah. on a screen. Did you have a, any little moment, any little frisson of, of envy, thinking, I'd love to have work on this, uh, this, something of this scale and have these resources, this budget? Yeah, I mean, pressure would be immense, I'd suspect, you know, and I, I, like obviously there was firings and all sorts of things in that production. So, you know, I've done a couple of things before where the pressure has gotten a bit high and some productions there's going to be a higher level of worry about money. So people start getting a lot more stressed and that can kind of break the, uh, the camaraderie down a bit, you know. Dennis, you mentioned the importance for you of, of seeing some of international work, you know, going to Avenue mm. and getting away. Is that important for all of you, that you see and hear work from other countries that you get to travel? Carl? Yeah, well, same as that. I was in Berlin for three months at one point. It's just off the top of my head, this one that springs to mind. It does, it's just very inspirational to, to watch the work there. And they, they have everything from the lowest budget to the highest budget there as well. And everybody's, mm -hmm. you know, working really hard. Their theatre-going audience there 
as well. They really love going there. So yeah. there's an extra, there's an extra element of people going. People like to see boo, don't they? If they don't like something. Yeah, they will yeah. Boo. And they will they walk out. I was in an extra the, dimension of the sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I was in the Shabuna once where really yeah, there was people were walking out because they didn't like it. But everybody else was that. That's normal. Oh, there's yeah. someone who doesn't like it. They're walking out, and they don't yeah. just walk out. They stomp out. You know, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I'm not happy they with make this. Make a noise you know? about it. You know, and I'm watching it going, my God, this is <laughs> this is amazing. I mean, we get walkouts here. I mean, they're very polite. Yeah, they're generally very quiet. Uh, Alma, I wanted to talk to you about a show that I saw here in Project for the first time, uh, River Run, based on Finnegan's Wake. Wonderful show with an extraordinary soundscape in it. Uh, before we talk about it, though, we might hear a short excerpt from it, I suppose, illustrating some of your work. Sound of the Tunnel of Time somehow <laughs> uh, from River on here. And Al McKellar, you went on to win the Best Sound Design Theatre Awards uh, 2013 for that. And I think that particular work with Alwyn Fuerig and the team, uh, the development of that, of River on, was very important for you. Yeah, and, and quite unusual in that it was over a long period of time. But I think a text like Finnegan's Wake deserves as much time as you can give. And we could have spent 10 years at it. Um, so Alwyn adapted the text herself. So she had been with it for a year or two before I went near it. But I was allowed to, to try things out and allowed to fail and allowed to say, like, what about this mad sound? And we'd try it. And she'd go, OK, let's really jump into that. And then we'd come away and say, maybe not that. And we'd start again. So we started from scratch, like, three or four times, which I've never really done before because you don't have the time to do that. There was one point we did a work in progress in Paris. And I had, like robot sounds and her voice had like a phase vocoder and talking like a oh I want to see that production it was so strange and weird voice triggering where every time she talked it would sound like someone was typing what she was saying which was a lovely gimmick but deeply distracting and so yeah we we brought it down to something much more earthy and simple as we went along and yeah that feeling of being in a timeless place and in a underwater really, under the river of life, really. <laughs> but it must, have been, it must have been wonderful to have had the, the time to experiment and to say, no, that's not right, we go again. Yeah. And so often I think people are under pressure and they get five or six weeks to, to come up with something. Yeah, and, and also... To have that longer time must be great. It was amazing, but also I think the fact that sound was so central was um, a, a really new experience for me because usually, you know, sound is even when it's really important in a show. There's a lot of people on stage, four or five actors maybe have a lot of other things to do and you don't want to get in their way. Whereas 
sound for Alwyn to, to give the piece her all. She needed it. And so that meant I could really, really go for it, which was very cool. How important were technicalities in that, like the right, the right mics, the right everything for, to get exactly what you wanted? So important. I'm smiling at Kelly Hughes, the co-director of River Run. She knows exactly how You're important the, audience, the technicalities yeah. were. We tried five or six different microphones, more even. They were important both aesthetically because the set of the show was just a scattering of salt and a mic stand. To show you the technicalities, we tried out six or seven different types of salt before we even got to the microphones. But we had a wonderful sound engineer called Benny Lynch, who was involved in the show, who really, really looked after us. I wouldn't have been able to do that without him because Alwyn used the microphone as her instrument. So she approaches, I don't touch the microphone during the show because she controls it and she decides how close she goes and how much she wants to give. But even the speaker placement and doing it in different theatres meant the sound behaved differently in each place. So you were starting not quite from scratch, but nearly in each place and trying to find a way to make the seating bank reverberate a little bit and how loud it goes. And so, so yeah, incredibly technical work. And were you happy with it? by the time you got it all together. And I, I, I remember it as one of this, these extraordinary moments in theatre, the impact of that particular show, Finnegan's Wake, notoriously difficult to read, never mind adapt yeah. and, and present as a theatre piece. Yeah, I'm incredibly happy and it's without a doubt my proudest work because it was with a wonderful team and everyone on the team, it meant something to them. It wasn't just a show, it was a special show. Tom Oedipus and um, working with Wayne Jordan. You, of course, you've worked with Wayne a number of times in the past as well, and you, you talked about Twelfth Night. Mm. Uh, with, with Oedipus, were there particular challenges? I mean, it's, it's very striking that in, in the piece, and we'll hear a little from it in a while, the chorus sings mm. quite a lot. They sing, they sing a lot of, of, of their commentary, of their lines. Yeah. How did you fix on that? Well, it was, a, it was also quite a long process, not quite as long as, as River Run sounds. It was about a year, so we basically started about a year ago from now. We read lots of different translations of the text and versions of the text. And then we also had the chance to workshop some of the music. Basically, no one knows exactly what the productions looked or sounded like, but there's indications in the texts that we have, which aren't even the original source text. They're like from a thousand years after they, it was written or more. There's indications that some parts of the, of the production was, was sung. But then in Greek, in, in ancient Greek, it's, it's a little complicated because the boundary between singing and speaking was also more blurred and... It's, quite, it's, it's a very rhythmic and, and, and metered language. There's like a recitational style, which no one exactly knows what it was like, but it was kind of a, a bit like Beowulf or something, like kind of Anglo-Saxon thing. There's also indications from like pictures on pots that people danced and the chorus danced a lot and sung. I mean, that's the chorus, it's like choreography. It's all kind of singing and dancing together. And there's also uh, um, instruments, like there was a, a double reed uh, flute, which on some pots there's people playing this with plays. Anyway, so we kind of had that information and then we thought, well, Wayne Jordan, who's been kind of incubating this project for about five or six years, it's been a long thing for him. He wanted to use music in it and he wanted these kind of five choral sections to be sung. So that was our kind of starting point. But then, we, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways of singing words and setting words to music. And there's lots of different types of music. We spent a long time like then finding what kind of music would be the right thing to do. And that was, it was a difficult process. We almost gave up at one point and said, let's have no music. But um, I'm glad we didn't. And it was, yeah, it was difficult. It, just took, it took literally like six months of trying different things out. Then it's also hard to show with the director, especially when you're working with sung uh, music. 
one of the big things, I'm sure everyone uh, does it as well, is you kind of show directors, we play the music that you've been working on or sound, they'll give you notes and they'll decide if it's the right thing for the piece. Depends on each director, but that's generally how it is, I think. But when you're working with sung stuff, uh, you can't just mock it up with an instrument or with a computer thing because you need to hear the words. <laughs> so that was very hard. So I had to look, do a lot of, I had to sing a lot of the parts in and like multi-track myself singing, which is, yeah, difficult. On which note? <laughs> yeah, well, so <laughs> I just hear an extra. Will I, will I just preface it and say, so this is yeah. just literally, it's like a very first mock-up I did of one piece of thing. And this is like the first time I ever sang this in. <laughs> and so, and it's like You'll four of me and it's also in falsetto and like tenor <laughs> and bass. So it's actually SATB all me. So it's not like a studio professional thing. I presume it's, uh, it's a good thing to be able to sing and communicate yeah, I mean, that way with yeah. a director and with actors so yeah. you can actually really let I mean, that's part, what you want. Part of the reason that Wayne asked me to work on the project is well, because I've worked as a professional singer for several years, many, many years. Uh, I've worked at, like conducting choirs and doing choirs and things, so it was kind of good that I had that experience. I knew how to work with singers and actors, singers. Uh, but I learned a lot on the project as well, so yeah. And the text, in case you couldn't hear the text, the text is, for death is all the fashion now, till even death be dead, which is a line from Yeats's translation of Oedipus. And that's one, we, we quote a few lines of his in the play, and that's one of the ones. And it's, yeah, that's in the show. Things fall apart. Things fall apart, the centre, yes. kind of, well, which is from, which is from a, yes. a poem, not mm, from the Oedipus. Yes. But this, yeah. Was it a challenge to set a line like that, though, you know, a really iconic Yeats yeah. line? Oh. In, to music in a, in a theatre piece? No more of a challenge than any of the other things. And I think it's actually easier to set kind of poetic lines because it's more, more metered, whereas lots of the other stuff is more, much more prose. Uh, you just have to find the right rhythm and notes for the line and then just listen to it till it sounds right. <laughs> of course, many playwrights, Yeats may or may not have been among them, have a very acute ear for sound and music within the work, uh, as well as few more so than the late Brian Friel, uh, a master of the art of sound and word as music. And remembering Brian Friel, I think it's appropriate that we listen to this piece by Carl Kennedy. <laughs>
and that was Waiting by Carl Kennedy, composed for Philadelphia, Here I Come, by Brian Friel, directed by Andrew Flynn at the Lyric Theatre in Belfast and performed there by musicians Cora Venus Lunny on violin and Martin Nolan on Illin Pipes. Carl, tell me about the composition of that piece for Philadelphia. That particular piece was for the scene just before um, Gar's if you know the play Gar Public and Gar Private, the character is split into two halves, his, his public side and his private side. And uh, his aunt Lizzie is coming to visit to try and convince him to move to America and come stay with her and, and her husband Con and their friend Ben. In this production, it's a memory he has. So the play is kind of in real time and at this moment he has this memory of when they come in and it's, it's a summer's day and it's, it's quite bright and he's... At this point, he's, he's, you know, he's emotional and he's trying to figure everything out. You know, he's just about to leave. In this production, they come on very, very slowly. There's a visual aspect for it, and it's, it's all very simple. And when they arrive, they're all quite boisterous. But in this production, as they come in, you know, it's very calm and he's remembering, and there's, there's quite a visual as things change. For this production, we had to try and find something that was quite simple uh, and gentle, but also had that little sense of the, the emotion behind it. For this, I was mainly trying to, to think of an instrument often. I don't know if, if you guys work that sometimes. If you need to do something that's underscore and it's not too complicated, it, it might be under speaking to try and find something that might work for the piece. And again, in discussions with the director, we, we said we'd use Illin pipes. The strings were in there as well. For, so the, the whole production had this kind of, you know, in and out of, of this instrument there to kind of, it has this kind of longing sound, you know, that suited, you know, where Gar was. Very haunting piece. Um, Dennis Lazzi, you also made music for a real play not so long ago, um, Aristocrats at the Abbey. What was that experience like? I mean, Freel had a very particular feel for music. Yeah, well, in fact, I, there was, I didn't compose anything for that. That's the, uh, the, the Chopin pieces that are mentioned. Yes. But we recorded Conor Linehan, yeah. who also does a huge amount of work in the theatre. And in fact, one of my kind of inspirations from, from when I started, uh, but he performed at, at his house. We brought it myself and Patrick Mason, the director, went out to, to his place, put microphones all over his piano and uh, recorded those. Because the idea is that the piano is being played off in the house. So we wanted various different kind of angles on the, on the sound so we could see which one was going to suit the offstage off sound the best. Patrick had the idea that the isolated family, or this family that was kind of isolated from the rest of the world in a way, the, the, the real world is coming in through the barricades into their family life to, the, to their home in Ballybeg. So we had this idea of the sound, of the troubles coming in, and I went out to RTE, in fact, and uh, plundered the archives and got a lot of sound from news reports, the raw footage of the sound. So we had a lot of the riots and the kind of civil rights pr uh, protests and, and helicopters and various things. So it was a really rewarding project to work on. So it was very much using music within a broader social context and trying to almost capture a sense of, of, of distance, again, at so many levels with, within that. Yeah, I mean, the way Friel would write the music into the play it actually timed perfectly. It was amazing because every time, you know, and I think it's probably also an actor's response to hearing the sound on stage, that they will almost feel what the information they're receiving is, from where, you know, whether it's from, from the playwright or from the, the composer or sound designer. I mean, it was just to tie in that offstage sound with what was coming in, I thought was a great juxtaposition and kind of uh, play those two worlds against each other. I want to talk about a piece then of, I suppose, of your own work, your own composition from uh, underneath uh, Pat Kinnevan, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but we might listen to a little from that first. I was in Cork City seven years. 
a sweltering 2nd of August and it was strange for me to be outdoors by day but I had to go to Uncle Blaze's funeral, the pet. Dolores was pissed at the mass but it wasn't in Cove, thank God, but Glanmire. So I got the train there and back. After that, up in the bike and down Pana and that's when I just stopped outside Roach's doors and I commanded myself, go in and buy something, girl. Treat yourself. <laughs> so I did. And even though I was roasting, I still had a light chiffon scarf over me lower face. I always wore a veil of some sort. Not in there two minutes, and I saw the brooch. A glinting owl. Cheeky hooters and a gilded beak. I was drawn to my little silly barn owl, Mr. Sparkles. That's what I would call him. And he would perch on my lapel and cheer me through the winter. Shop was an oven, so I took off my scarf to try him on. Delight with myself, and the till girl let me wear him out. He just felt right. I was beaming getting back on the bike. Cycled the rest of Panna, up the Grand Parade, and stopped at the lights by Finn's Corner. The courts were closing on Washington Street, thugs and solicitors all dispersing. Still at the lights, the heat was Saharan. The very distinctive sound of Pat Kinnevin there uh, in a fishamble production underneath. And uh, Dennis, that wonderful kind of duet, in a sense, that we hear there between voice and music. And how did you landscape that evocation that Pat gives us of place and memory and all of those things? Yeah, I mean, this is a, you know, another fantastic work from Pat Kinnevin. You know, it's, 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 um, I, I previously had worked on them with Silent, like a couple of other projects people have mentioned, this was another one that happened over a couple of years and it was developed and Pat, would, Pat and Jim Cullerton, who directed it, uh, would come out to the house, into my house, and we'd record Pat and he'd try various takes and, you know, get the timing and, you know, the inflections and all that kind of thing. Because there's a few sections where there's a voiceover and he performs uh, physically on stage while this, this and, and kind of plays with this beautiful set. I had him record it and, in fact, because it's recorded, the timing is set, and which is kind of not normal in theatre. Normally you're kind of trying to adapt to what an actor might do or you're kind of, you know, there's a bit of flux going on. So this is very much set. And at this point, the story of Underneath is about a girl who has been scarred and has had to put up with the trauma of people judging her for how she appears physically and not kind of looking at her, her, her real self, I guess. So she's gone through a lot of traumas and at this point she's finally kind of deciding I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to be uh, proud and positive. The whole idea of the music is to kind of heighten the idea that she's in a relaxed mood and uh, things are beginning to come together. Now the piece just cuts off there because something else happens and you'll have to go and see it to see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It just strikes me, you all sound as if you're constantly busy, but in general I'd say, fair to say, that there are tough times for people in, in theatre and in the arts in general, but is it possible to make a living? Um. It's possible to be constantly busy, <laughs> uh, is how I would put it. And no one is in theatre to make a fortune. You're in it because you love it. People pay as much as they can and you work accordingly and yeah, you can get by no problem. It really depends, doesn't it? Like in busy times of year and really quiet time, like this is a really busy time because there's lots of festivals and lots of plays and if you're lucky enough, to be working, which is great, yeah, it's good. But then you, you might have longer periods. It's like a lot like actors, I think. They have 
very busy times, very quiet times. Uh, so you kind of sometimes to compensate those quiet periods, you have to take on several projects several simultaneously. Yeah, that's the is, difficulty, the juggling. Yeah, which is tough, but you kind of you kind of have to, and it's 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 exhilarating, but it's difficult. Yeah, and I think that's why a lot of us today are talking about the projects that we worked on over a long time because we gave them as much attention as we could over a long period of time, which I mm. think is important. Projects you've worked on, but at the Project Art Centre here, uh, has that been important to all yeah. of you in your development? So Carl. important. Carl, for you? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, I mean, it's an amazing space to work and there, there, you know, there are always things going on. And, um, and from starting off till now, productions of all sizes and you know, small starting off productions when you're going and larger productions have come here. So it's been a great place to, to come and work and, you know, and get to know. Uh, it also sounds great here. <laughs> great sound system. Yeah, great sound system. And you know, uh, everybody who works here all, all the time are, are fantastic and always, always really helpful. So it's always a lovely place to come. A, very create, a lot of very creative work happens here. Alma, you mentioned dance in particular, and uh, you've worked with Fergus O'Crohor. Yes. Um, great dancer, choreographer, and one particular piece, Cure. Um, talk to me a little bit about that and, and your work on it. I've a long-standing relationship with Fergus. We've worked together countless times now. We have a lovely way of working together. What's interesting with dance, which Tom touched on earlier, is um, that you can afford to let loose a little bit because it's slightly more abstract and people don't come to a dance show looking for a story. They come to feel something. And so you can really help with the music in order to create a feeling and an atmosphere rather than something more specific. When I work with Fergus and particularly on Cure, it involves a lot of conversations, a lot of talking to each other about emotions and feelings rather than specifics of that person will stand there at that time or whatever. Cure was a show on upstairs here in Project and it was about the process of recovery, of renewal and of curing yourself of something, be that physical, emotional or both. And Fergus danced this piece and we witnessed his physical representation of recovery. It was special because he worked with six different choreographers who each gave him a 10-minute piece and his job and my job were to work individually with those six people, but also with the arc of the whole show in mind. So when I created one little 10 minute piece, I always had to have my mind on the next one and the previous one as well. So it was a really interesting piece, really gritty. And literally he was pouring sand and grit on his skin and cleansing himself. And I kind of tried to emulate that in the sound as well. And then I moved towards rebirth and renewal. Let's have a listen to something of, if you like, the soundtrack for that.
a sample there of the sound world Al McKellar created for Cure by Fergus O'Croher here at Project. Do images come back? You know, do, do, do the memories come back vividly when you hear, hear the sound again? Yeah, I can very much see Fergus on the stage and see our kind of thought process behind it. That's the, the thing with theatre. You, you write all this stuff at home and you, you um, pour everything into it and then you have to kind of give it away. And the show goes on tour and you don't necessarily go with it. And so you create a distance. So I can kind of hear it slightly more objectively now, which is a nice thing as well. Dennis, you, you've also worked a little in, in film. Is it, is it a very different world uh, to the world of theatre? Or do the, are the two linked? I mean, does, for you, does one maybe sometimes inspire another? The big difference is the, the social life, uh, you know. I've, I've, I've done films where I've never met anyone, even the director, you know, so it's been on phone and it's been emailed and it's, you know, that kind of thing. But obviously theatre, you're going to come into rehearsals and you're going to have production meetings and you're going to go to the opening night. So in, in that regard, I mean, it is enlivening to work in theatre, you know, because you're meeting people, and you're getting ideas and all that kind of thing. With film, it's more set, you know, so you've got a final cut and that's what you're working towards. So. I, I guess originally I did the training for scoring for film. So I've kind of applied a bit of that to theatre work, for better or for worse. But I mean, I think one of the things about creating atmospheres and tensions and that kind of thing, that there is that, that kind of world from, from film where, you know, you can kind of create the idea of tension, essentially, that uh, can come through into the theatre. You also worked on, on this show, I remember very clearly, from, from the Abbey, um, Brecht, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, mm. uh, directed by Jimmy Fay. Totally different uh, to the Pat Kinnevin, for instance. The whole scope and scale of it. And I want to hear a little bit of that in a moment, but talk to me first about working on that and the challenge of making something new for Brecht as well. I mean, myself and Jimmy Fay talked quite a bit about what the score might be because it's obviously kind of set in Chicago of the 1930s and it's essentially a, a parable based on the rise of Hitler and what could happen. The idea at the time, there was a lot of stuff happening in Iraq. The invasion had happened a few years previously and I think there was a kind of a parallel being drawn between the actions of the, U- the US because at the time it was looking pretty ominous. There was a kind of contemporary addition to the 1930s. So I, a lot of the music was kind of jazzy and, and those brass and, and out-of-tune piano and that kind of thing. But there was also, we used, for example, Jimi Hendrix playing the American National Anthem, the, the Woodstock recording. There was kind of parallels being drawn there, but it was to try and merge the two. So, those, so this piece is kind of, I guess it's more from the world of the river run or the grounded kind of world, where it's more an atmospheric piece rather than a music, three chords and the truth kind of idea. It's, 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 it's a mood piece, I guess.
a little of the soundscape there for the resistible rise of Arturo Ui at the Abbey, Dennis Clasi's work, uh, a sample of it. Technology for all of you. I presume that developments in the last years have changed so much of what you do, what you can do, what's possible and how you do it. I mean, has that been a boon? Has it been a challenge? Do you have to keep up to date with things? Does it make it better? Um, it does. It's a good thing. Um, you know, I would tip along with what I have, except when someone comes to me and says, can we do this thing? And it's someone who doesn't even know if it's possible. And you're like, I'll find out if that's possible. <laughs> and then a week later, you have a new skill and it's something you can use over and over, which is a great thing. The flip side of that as well, you know, is when you're working on a laptop the whole time, cycling into work, hoping you don't fall off and crush your laptop because then your career's gone. <laughs> but then so. the good thing is you can kind of take a basic setup with you anywhere and you can exactly you can chuck it in your bag just a simple mic and your laptop and you're good to go and you could record stuff and you can do stuff and you could do stuff very quickly in the rehearsal room mm-hmm. and you can kind of throw stuff together and mix it and try it and you don't have to go away for weeks and prepare it yeah it's funny because people know that now as well yeah, that's <laughs> the difference yeah. <laughs> at the start people were like wow you could do that so fast and you're kind of yeah <laughs> but it's now expected so yeah. you can see time shortening and going okay is that edit ready because you we you wanted know, the day before you know, yesterday yeah. not you know, just yesterday you know yeah you can you can work really fast and you you all know you can automate things a lot more as well as as it's, it's digital technology, really, which is coming in, and there's still an argument about how that sounds over, you know, analog equipment. And I'm sure you've heard of bands who won't, you know, who still record on tape and won't record. To, so, that, but, but we, in terms of how fast you have to work, you have to use computers when you're mm. when you're working with sound design. It's amazing. It's amazing the things you can do. One of the good things I find uh, is that you get more control because there's so many flexible things in theatre. Uh, which can change all the time because it's so live. But then I think if you can control some elements, for, for example, how much sound you have in any given speaker in a space, so you're really spatializing that sound, mm. you can really precisely control that and really get the, the right effects. And it's every night. I mean, it's depending on how much, I mean, people are in the audience, like little things like that and how much clothing they're wearing. But... <laughs> what shows are you doing? <laughs> well, like scarves, <laughs> and, you know, big coats absorb a lot of sound. Yeah. You can, yeah, you can precisely, you know, you can have, you can get a sound coming out of there and you can make it move around the space and you can really immerse people in sound, which is brilliant. Like 10 years ago, 2005, I did a production of Titus Andronicus in upstairs in the project, and I had too many discs and two CD players and a bunch of faders, and I was running around like a mad joke. But, so now it's, you know, you plot it in, you program it, and there's an operator there and it hits a space bar at a particular time, and that's essentially how a show, most shows will run now. I mean, there's other elements depending on how, like maybe River Run and that kind of thing will, will have much more... Fiddly. More fiddly. Stuff. fiddly. It's, just more, it's more reliable, <laughs> isn't it? Elements. It's more reliable. You can have the the same thing, which doesn't make it boring because it's, it's never going to be a film. You know, it's always yeah. live, but you yeah. can reliably achieve the same yeah. results. Yeah, which is brilliant. Exactly. Are there particular challenges, and I presume there are, associated with site-specific work? You know, when you're working outside of conventional theatres and you have to go <laughs> and make peace in an old building, an outdoor space, how does that work? Um, All of us had that slightly shell-shocked look there when you mentioned <laughs> site-specific, so so many variables and realise when you come out of a theatre space how spoilt you've been to have yeah. a technical support team and a roof a system that works <laughs> yeah. a roof yeah. yeah power and bathroom nearby you know there's so many things that you take for granted working site specific also has its own merits as well because it has its own atmosphere you don't have to build an atmosphere and a sense of place and space exists already it's a different 
experience. I think the one that. thing that, that particularly producers have to be aware of that it costs money yes, to yes. rent gear to bring it to a place. You know, so the, the equipment here, I'm not sure how much it's worth, but it's worth Lots. tens probably of thousands. And this, that's just in this room. So in terms of renting equipment, people just have to be kind of aware of that. There's a lot of begging and borrowing mm-hmm. going on when you're doing site-specific because there's a very small budget usually allocated. So it's not, an, not enough to bring your laptop. <laughs> no, you well, also have to, yeah. yeah. And people yeah. now, as we were saying, yeah. expect a certain standard. So they expect it to sound great and it's only then Wherever you realise mm. how of, much money well, and equipment is behind one it. One of the several mad things I've done site-specific was on an Irish rail train, which, a moving train, in a tunnel, which was fun in the part of the Bram Stoker Festival last year with a director called Mavestone. And we used um, radio headphones, which is like silent disco headphones. But we had to overcome a lot of obstacles uh, with Irish Railway safety things because they had radio transmitters, <laughs> tickets, that kind of thing. And then also then we used the sound system in the train and the actually only way of accessing that, there's no, you can't plug into that. You had to use the like handset in the driver's cab. And the only way I could work out to do it quickly and reliably was literally taping this handset to a guitar amplifier and blasting stuff through that. And the quality was terrible, but it literally was coming out of the speakers, but it was just, and I was in this driver's cab taping this thing. <laughs> I felt like I was in a Bond movie. It was insane. <laughs> but I loved it. <laughs> do, do you all relish a challenge like that? You know, being confronted with something that really makes you have to work a little bit extra. It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I work at a lot with a new who, who are a site-specific company who work from Dublin, but who work all over the place. And uh, another company as well called Performance Corporation, but who are often outside the theatre site. But with a new, for example, a lot of the challenges are audience because there'll be a small amount of audience but it's actually here the gears is away from nobody can touch it but Mm. you know you might have to use a transistor radio and you overcome the challenges which is great without sometimes the technology doesn't always have the answer and you have to use you know like like tom was saying use you know i you would use if there's if we run out of things you know you use radios and and anything at all to hand to to do what you need or if you need something to rumble and you've only a small speaker you have to try and find you know a piece of wood that you can stick it against so that the wall moves you know because the sound can actually you know move things which is really interesting but there was a on the technology side of things that's also very delicate because sometimes I would, I would work with sensors and the audience are are there controlling you know they're operating the show so you know an audience will will do something but obviously these things are very delicate so <laughs> the technology can break easily when when you know faced with with strong physical challenges. <laughs> <laughs> what do you all think? And we'll wind up soon, but I, I'm intrigued by this in a way. You know, what do you all think a good sound design can bring to a production? And how can it maybe sometimes reinvigorate a text and play, bring, give it some, something new? Because I've heard it at times where something sounds fresh. Primarily, it's about enhancing the story or the, the mood of the piece. You know, and people will talk a lot, and particularly in film, going, oh, it was a great score, I didn't notice it. But I don't necessarily agree with that. I think if you can have something really strong and people go, that was a great score, and our, our sound design, and it just, it, the story felt so alive and the characters were, were right there, you know. One of my favourite films is Once Upon a Time in the West, which is, uh, you know, has this great score that was written before filming and they played it on set for the actors. They, they, the actors were responding to it. And in a way, so that was kind of like a theatrical presentation in a way that the actors would actually hear what, what the score is going to be. So I think it's, it's not about hiding the music or the sound away, although that's important sometimes, obviously, but I think it's about boldly telling a story. I think that's important. Alma. 
For me, it's about articulating something that you can't articulate with words. Because if you could, you'd, they'd just be in the words. So a sense of space bringing you somewhere physically that you didn't know you should go. You're watching something on stage and the action could be quite light and nice. And if you play something ominous and nagging in the background, it could be so simple, just a kind of a tone. It tells people, oh, there's something not right here. And you can't get that from the text. So it, you can shift the atmosphere and the space on its head in that way. And also, you know, music can bring people to tears without them really articulating why they're crying. They just know it's in them. And you've an opportunity to mould that. Tom, I would say it's almost too powerful. And I think <laughs> it's, it's amazing how what, what you, can, you can change pretty much a piece of text into anything with, with different types of music. And it's phenomenal. And I think you have to know when less is more and when not to do something. That's actually... Because, you know, if you, let, if you let one of us rip on a play, we would literally just be just blasting covered. our stuff nonstop. <laughs> yeah. And people are like, what, what is that noise? I think it's about listening. If you do a good sound, then you have to listen to everything, but then also kind of listen with your eyes and listen... Well, listen to what the director's saying and the lighting designer's saying and look at everything and listen to the whole thing and try and fit as part of that and work with everyone. It's like theatre is the most collaborative art form. Carl, there is also an interpretation that you give to a text, say speaking of theatre solely, how you react to it as a sound designer, what you make. But I think what it can do is it can let the audience in in the same way as really good text. If you're watching really good text, it allows the audience's brain to work and their heart to work and everything to work so that it's not just doing exactly what, what's being told to them, but it lets them in and lets them participate. And I think really good sound design can do that as well. You know, let your heart in, let your mind in, that each individual can, you know, can interpret it that way and it, it allows them to open up in the way, I think, as well. Well, I could go on talking and listening all day, but we have to call a halt there. Uh, thanks to you all uh, for the work in theatre and the sounds you've given us and indeed for taking part in this discussion, this RTE Arts Tonight event on the art of sound and theatre here at the Project Arts Centre as part of the Dublin Theatre Festival 2015. Tom Lane, Carl Kennedy, Alma Kelleher and Dennis Classy. And thanks to you, our audience here as well. And until very soon from me, Vincent Woods, goodbye. Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods, is produced by Cleon Inionloon, and sound supervision for the programme was by Ado Cunningham.